from APM, American Public Media, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. Not long ago, I was invited to be on a panel in Minneapolis that focused on the value of higher education. The central question, is college worth the cost? The event was part of a series called Policy and a Pint, which is a forum designed to engage 20- and 30-somethings in social issues by encouraging them to get together and even share a beer. It's hosted by Minnesota Public Radio's rock station, The Current. I was invited because, as regular listeners to the podcast know, ARW has a special focus on both K-12 and higher education. The other guests were Razul Dasmost, who's the president of St. Paul College, a local community and technical college, and Deborah Bushway, the chief academic officer for Capella University, a Minnesota-based online for-profit institution. This week, here are some excerpts from our conversation, which was moderated by DJ Steve Seal. Who needs higher education? It seems almost everyone, we're told, or we're sort of brought to think that uh, this universal understanding that everyone should attend college in some way. But there seems to be a disconnect Are we actually preparing people with the skills that they need to create the strong workforce that we need? There's there's a lot of chatter saying that we aren't. I'll start with you, uh, Deborah. I think part of the disconnect is that what we have had in terms of higher ed in the past and uh, for a very long time is that people earn degrees. And an employer doesn't really understand. It becomes a bit of a black box, this degree. The employer can't see inside that degree to understand what the heck it means. What can you do with that degree? What skills have you acquired? Uh, What competencies have you developed? What does that mean in terms of what my business needs in terms of talent to move us forward? So the American dream, which allegedly includes a house, an education, and a good job, is a product of uh, post-World War II America. And the education system that we have now didn't exist in large part before then. I don't know if St. Paul, when is St. Paul College founded? 1910. 1910, but the community college movement in general. 66. Yeah, so, um, and obviously online education is is a pretty new thing. The, the college student that you see on the acceptance brochures is not the college student of today. And in some ways, it was only the college student for a very slim slice of American history. Today's college student is not between 18 and 22 going to a four-year school, uh, starting one, uh, freshman year and going all the way through to senior year and completing in four years. Today's college student, by and large, uh, is a person in his or her 20s or older working part-time, going generally to a uh, public institution, and the, the crisis, if there, there are many crises in, public ed, in higher education, just, you know, what day is it, what crisis is it? But the challenge uh, that, that is really behind a lot of our conversation today is that, yes, the, the contemporary economy requires kinds of education that include post-secondary, but the problem is far too many people are going to college unprepared, not completing, and ending up with a lot of debt, and not nothing to show for it because this idea that it, it's all about a job and it's all about you know preparing for the the, the, the workplace is also a relatively new conversation yes, in higher education. Yes, you know there are great values to just learning, right? right? But 
the just learning argument doesn't have a lot of traction anymore. So one of the ways we know most of our degrees have been earned historically is through earning credits, right? And credits are really rooted in an industrial age mindset about education. The Carnegie it's system. It's the Carnegie credit hour, mm, right. which is rooted in how much time you sit yeah. in a spot, not how much you learn. Exactly. Right? Yes. And so it's a fundamental shift. So, but that's, that's really an industrial age model. It's about inputs. And if we make a shift to outcomes, then it begins to sort of tug at this whole system and challenges us. But, but what I wonder is, so this is becoming more and more common and the paradigm is indeed shifting, but how do employers see it when they're going to hire prospective employees? Is there still this paradigm that has not shifted in terms of I look at this resume and I see, oh my goodness, yeah, there's a bunch of experience here, but I see that uh, the person X here went to Columbia Journalism School and got their bachelor's uh, right there, and that's really the, th the thing that really makes my brain click. Well, I think there are two things. Yes, I think there is still brand, you know, brand prestige is enormous if you go to a branded a school with that kind of... Okay, uh, University of Texas at Austin. You know, how much of a difference is that still going to make as opposed to these genuinely innovative programs that are happening that, that are not based on the credit system, but nevertheless, I wonder... It depends on the sector. That's okay? exactly First okay. of all, it depends That's on the exactly sector. Right. The second Tell thing is that. that there isn't a lot of great data on this question That's right. anyway. I mean, there's some data, and it's usually folks from this part of the academic sector who are doing more research into what employers want. But, you know, there are basically two things that, that, if I will generalize, that employers look at for people coming out of post-secondary education. Have they learned how to think critically? Right. And have they learned specific skills that are relevant to the job at hand? Okay. Right? Yep. And, and how do they know that with just a degree? And how do they know that with a degree? I'm looking through my notes here because I wanted to find the name because... Lipscomb. Having, yeah, well, that's one thing, which was, a, which was a study that happened in, where was this? Is it in, in somewhere in Tennessee? So Lipscomb is in Tennessee. Yeah, and it's tell, a, let's talk about that. It's a very interesting long-term uh, institution that has moved to a competency-based model, um, meaning that they're no longer asking their students to accumulate credits to get a degree, but to demonstrate competencies. And some of the competencies are in these observable labs. Um, but rather than counting how much time people are spending getting those degrees, what they've done is they've gone to local employers, and, and other folks in Tennessee are doing this great job. Community colleges in Tennessee are also doing a fabulous job of partnering with local employers and, and doing this kind of training. But what Lipscomb has done is they're offering a completely competency-based degree. And I think there's a little bit of um, sometimes confusion when we talk about competencies. We haven't had it yet, but preemptively. Uh, I think some people think it only is technical skill. And competencies involve the, the cognitive ability to have a theory and apply it to a specific problem. Sure. And one of the reasons this is so interesting, that this is a movement within higher education that is just really starting to, to form. But one of the things, I don't know if it's the dirty secret, but it's the unfortunate secret or the awkward secret of higher education is that for a sector that is so busy studying stuff all over the world, uh, higher ed knows very little about what students actually learn That's right. when they walk away with a degree. Um, in fact, there, was a, you know, there have been some recent studies that 
cast quite a bit of doubt on what students actually learn if they go to a four-year conventional, you know, liberal arts college. Uh, they end up a senior. There's really no way of knowing exactly or even roughly what they've learned. Again, it's a seat time thing. Right. And so this change to competency-based or other ways of credentialing badges and other yeah. kinds of things could really disrupt the sector. Okay, so I'm sold, uh, but what I really want to know is, um, as this, this really cool stuff is happening in these sort of laboratories, such as your institution and your institution, is this the future of education, or are, or are so many schools still so ossified in their methods and just such monolithic institutions that, that it would take a very, very long time for this sort of to move over from a credit-based system, or is there hope? Let's say this is the answer. Is this the future? Is the answer, and is it going to change? I, I think education, if you view education as a dynamic proposition, you have to adapt to change. You can't just assume you're going to have 50 classrooms, 30 students, brick and mortar. You have to be able to use technology to the advantage of your students' learning. And we want to make sure that we set the students at the right path. Because if the students coming to St. Paul College or a two-year community college, they're mostly their first-generation students. If they don't have a good experience, they will walk away. And they basically become liabilities along the, they become collateral damage to themselves because they have the loans and they have all these other financial aids that they've taken. So you have to make education a worthwhile proposition with the best return on investment. So you have to stay dynamic. You have to continuously measure and assess how effective you are based on what you do, but you can't remain stagnant and assume that the way we went to college or when I went to college is going to be repeating itself day in, day over again. No, today's the students are totally different from when I went to college 30-some-odd years ago. I think the other thing to keep in mind or to understand is that our higher education system at the moment, the critics will say, is, um, is a failure factory. I mean, it's a su success for a lot of people, but uh, if you include two- and four-year institutions, the majority of people who start college don't finish. The majority? The majority of people who start college don't finish. And they're weighed down with and, tons and tons of debt. Well, some of them are. Yeah. And the, 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 the most decisive factor in whether or not a person is going to complete college is economic status. Yep. Right? People from privileged backgrounds where college has been part of their family history and where they, you know, have grown up with fairly decent high schools, those people tend to finish. Yeah. But the people for whom, you know, college represents the most significant ladder of upward mobility, for those people, the system is kind of rigged. And one of the things about the system that's rigged is that the high schools send them to whatever college they go to unprepared to succeed. They spend their first year or two doing remedial education. It's incredibly boring. They have to spend money on the classes they should have, the stuff they should have learned in high school. Yeah. And, and for us, the way we're working it backward is we are looking at some remedial education mapping into the high school yeah. from 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. So when we get the students at the community college, we're not reworking the attrition puzzle, meaning that the minute they come in, they algebra have to, one, algebra all over one. Again. And they have to take three math classes in order to be even sitting in an algebra one class. So why should you right. do that? So we're working with high schools to figure out what remediation could be done, how the mapping could be done in order to minimize the debt of the students. You brought up a very good point. 
83% of Caucasians go to four-year universities. 72 and 83% of people of color and Latino Latina go to open access institution. It doesn't take a genius to take a students with an ACT of 30 to 36 to make them successful. The genius is to take somebody with ACT of 17, make them college bound in a year so they can go to Columbia University from St. Paul College or they can go from Stanford from St. Paul College in two years. That's a special genius. Those are students have capacity except they were not given the opportunity. You heard excerpts from the most recent installment of Policy and a Pint, an event put on by Minnesota Public Radio's rock station The Current and a local organization called The Citizens League. We have a link to the event at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can also find more podcasts about the future of college and a range of issues in K-12 and higher education. You can also browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects, AmericanRadioWorks.org. We're on Facebook at American.RadioWorks, and you can follow us on Twitter at AM RadioWorks. Support for American RadioWorks comes from Lumina Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.